Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see all of you here. Go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Just a few things I do want to remind you of before we dive into our lesson. Remember tonight uh, we'll have our kids sing starting at 6 o'clock. So any of the youngins, make sure you're studying your cards at home and you come prepared in the morning. uh, Or not in the morning. You don't have to be here Monday morning. You come prepared tonight for kids sing. So make sure you keep that in your mind. Also remember the ladies retreat is coming up. If you've got any questions about that. Uh, You can go to the bulletin board. I believe there's a list of responsibilities and some information on the bulletin board. We also have our hobo dinner that's coming up, and that's on the calendar out in the hallway. So keep that in mind and jot that down on your calendar. Um, Any of the men who may be interested, we're planning a men's retreat uh, for kind of the West Georgia, East Alabama area at Backwoods Christian Camp. It's going to be the weekend after the ladies' retreat. Uh, We're going to go out there. We've got a big shooting range set up and a number of other things. So if you're interested in that, come talk to me after services, and uh, I can get you the information and the cost of that. Uh, So keep that in your mind. Also, all those who agreed to help work on the website, uh, we're in the process of building a new website for the congregation. All of those who agreed to work on that with me, or if you're interested in working on that with me. Meet with me after services. I'll just be down here in the front and we need to get together for a day uh, to figure out when we can work on that and uh, talk about some details surrounding that. So meet me after services down here at the front and we can talk about those details. John chapter 8. We're in the middle of a discussion on God's great expectations. What does God expect of you? What does God expect of me as I am working towards heaven? We talked about Not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, that God expects me to be prepared for eternity. And that He expects me to do certain things in order to prepare my life and my spiritual nature ready for being in eternity with Him. And we talked about what we need to do for that. Further than that, this morning we're going to talk about another part of God's great expectations. And that is that God expects for you and me to be abiding in His Word. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Before we get into this uh, lesson and before we begin into this text, I want to ask you a question very quickly. Can you imagine what it would be like to suffer from amnesia? To suffer from amnesia. A man by the name of Jeffrey Ingram, when he was around the age of 40, went through amnesia for a second time. All he was doing was driving across the Washington state border into Canada to visit a friend who was dying of cancer. You see, back in the 90s, he experienced amnesia for the first time. He was only going to the grocery store to get some food for dinner, and his family didn't see him for six months. He left out of the driveway, and he essentially 
disappeared. Now, finally, he came home and his family helped him regain most of his memory and he, he rebuilt his life for the most part. But again in 2006, Jeffrey disappeared as he was headed to Canada. He arrived in Canada and didn't get to the hospital, but arrived in some other city and essentially lost who he was and disappeared for another nine months. Eventually, police officers found him in Denver, Colorado. He was asleep on the side of the road, and they put him on the evening news because they didn't know who he was, and he didn't know who he was. And this is what he said on the evening news. He said, if anybody recognizes me, if anybody knows who I am, please let somebody know. Later, his fiance, once he was found by his family and they brought him back home, he looked his fiance in the face and he said, I don't really know her. Her face is not familiar to me, but her heart is familiar to me. Later, in a press interview, his fiance recounted how he described home. He came home and he said, I don't remember this as my home, but it kind of feels like a home. He had lost who he was. This morning, I want to ask you a very question, some, a very important question, something I want us to consider. And that question is, where do you live? Where do you live? Is it possible that you have forgotten, like Jeffrey did with his amnesia, where your home is and where you're supposed to live? John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus gives us a very clear and concise command. Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This morning, I want you to consider, do you abide in God's Word? Do you live in God's Word? You know, oftentimes we use that word abide in this way. You know, that's my home. That's my humble abode. That's where I live. That's where I abide. That's the place where I belong. Do you realize this morning that if we fail to live, as the text says, in the Word of God, that if we fail to live within God's divine Word, that we forget who we are? Not only do we forget who we are, but we forget where home is. We forget that we have a spiritual family, that we're ought to conduct ourselves a certain way, that we have a responsibility both to God and to our fellow Christians. We forget who our Father is. And if we stay in that spiritual state of amnesia for too long, we may miss out on the eternal blessings of being home. And so this morning, there's several things we're going to discuss, but the main thing I want us to consider is, where do you live? You see, because the Bible clearly tells us here in John 8, 31 and 32 that God expects us to live in His Word. The question is, is that where you're living? Because there's no way that you and I can live by the standard that God has asked us to live by. There is no way that you and I can have the memory that we need to have. That we experience the spiritual blessings that are there for us. That we can have an influence and an impact on the people around us. That you and I can can do things for the Lord if we fail to abide or to live in God's Word. If we fail to know where home is. But why should I care about living according to God's standards? Why, why does that matter? Why is that important? Warren Buffett's a very rich and wealthy man. As of this morning, he's worth $89 billion. More money than most of us will ever see in our life. We could probably even not even dream of that. Not only Warren Buffett, but Bill Gates is also a very wealthy man. He's worth $97.8 billion as of this morning. Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, he's worth $60.7 billion. And Jeff Bezos, 
The Amazon CEO is worth $163.2 billion. Very wealthy men. You see, if you were to take all their money, you would take Warren Buffett's $89 million, Bill Gates' 79.8, 60.7, and $163.2 billion, and add that together, you'd come to a sum total of $410,700,000,000. Now, if you, were to, if you could liquidate all of these men's assets and put them into one bank account, and you were to write a check for $410 billion, $700 million, and you were to take that check to the Lord and say, I want to buy someone's soul. You couldn't buy a single one. Notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whatever is, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Why should you care about living in God's Word. The reason is that every single person who lives on this earth has been given a soul by God, and that soul has one of two destinations. They're either going to go to heaven or they're going to go to hell. So the question is, are you living in God's Word this morning so that you can know where you're going to end up? Are you living in God's Word so that you can then share with other people the story about how you can tell them where they're going to end up? Are you living in in God's Word. Now it's important for you and I to understand before we dive into John 8, 31 and 32 that the Word we're talking about this morning is very powerful. The Hebrew writer said that the Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul says of it in 2 Timothy 3 that it's given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness and it makes you complete. That the Word of God can make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. You see, Paul later described it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. He says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The word we're talking about that God wants you to live in, it's a powerful word. And it can do things for your life. It can tell you what you need to do. It can correct you when you're wrong. It can do so much on behalf of the Christian. In fact, it can do so much, it's talked out continuously throughout the Word. For instance, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul t or Peter tells us that God's Word has given us everything that pertained to life and godliness. Everything you need to know about living your life and being godly in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 is in this book. It gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But not only that, over in 1 Peter chapter 1, Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Peter says that we need to lay aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and evil speaking. And as newborn babes, we need to desire the pure milk of the Word. So not only is God's Word something that is powerful, but it's also something that gives us everything. It's something that we should desire. I should have a growing desire for God's Word. You see, and as I read it, I don't just read it and think, oh, yeah, you know, that's some good advice. I might, I might keep that. I might not. I don't really know. No, the Bible says, according to James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, that I don't just hear it and walk away and say, oh, you know, whatever. That's good advice. I may use it. Uh, godly, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not even in the Bible, ironically. But I'm just going to use those things as quick quips for people when I want to say something. No, he says I need to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. 
That when I look at myself in the perfect law of liberty, I walk away and I know what kind of man I am. I know who God wants me to be. You see, God's Word is powerful. And I don't need to just be a listener. I need to listen and then I need to do. But He also tells me that Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, that when I know this Word, I need to go everywhere teaching it to people. I need to share it with others. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. And so as we have this in our mind, and we think about John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, I want us to know that God's Word can offer us a lot of things. How can we do God's will? How can we abide in God's Word? How can we live there? Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 said that those in Berea, that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all readiness and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. Are you living in God's Word? Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Jesus answered Satan. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are you living in God's Word? Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates once a week. On his law he meditates day and night is what it says. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This is how God communicates with us today. And if you and I want to be pleasing to God, we have to live in His Word. I have to spend time with it day and night. Imagine being in a marriage and you only talk to your spouse three times a week. For about an hour at a time. And that's the, that's the extent of the communication that you have with your spouse. You're going to be in some hot water if that's the case. God wants us to live in His Word. And it's no wonder because we invest our time into things that we think are important. You and I invest our time in all kinds of things. Our work, our family, our recreation, the shows we like to watch on Netflix. We invest our time into what we think is important. But Bible study is the right thing to do. And so God wants us, as John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, He wants us to abide in His Word, that we can be His disciples indeed, and we shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. But before we get there, open up your Bibles to Psalm 119. I promise we'll get there eventually. Psalm 119. We're just going to breeze through what is the longest chapter of the Bible this morning. Not everything in here is talking about the Word of God in the sense that Jesus is in John 8. But we can understand the parallel. And I want you to notice how David talks about that we need to live in God's Word. That we need to love God's Word. That we need to treasure God's Word. Let's start in Psalm 119 and verse 9. Psalm 119 and verse 9, notice what is said. How can a young man cleanse his way? The question is proposed. The answer... By taking heed according to your word. The word of God is cleansing. Psalm 119 and verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We must plant or hide God's word in our hearts. And if we do, it helps us to refute temptation and to push it away. Psalm 119 and verse 58. I thought about my ways. And I turned my feet to your testimonies. 
We need to change where our, where our feet are planted. We need to plant our feet in God's word. Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Is there an absolute truth? The psalmist claims that there is. Not only is it settled on earth, but it's also settled for all eternity. In eternity, forever, O Lord, your word is settled. Psalm 119 and verse 105. The psalmist believed that he was supposed to walk in the word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That word of God guides us. Psalm 119, verses one, verse 115. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. The psalmist says he's going to use God as a refuge and a hiding place. Why? Because when I need safety, I know where to go. I can go to God's word. Psalm 119, verses 161 and 162. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe. Of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Notice the respect. God's word is a treasure. When I look to God's word, I rejoice because I found it and it's a wonderful thing. I'm not going to get rid of it. Psalm 119 and verse 175. Let my soul live and it shall praise you and let your judgments help me. What Jesus is about to talk about in John chapter 8 finds itself right here in Psalm 119 and verse 175. We need to realize how much of a blessing it is to live in God's Word. The psalmist was very clear of how he felt about God's Word. Do you and I live in God's Word the way he did? When we think of God's Word, do we look at it the way Psalm 119 pictures it? That it's a treasure. That it's somewhere where I hide my life. That it's a blessing to me. Let's go to John 8, 31 and 32, our text for this morning. I want us to look at four things that Jesus says here. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My word, number one, you are My disciples indeed, number two, and you shall know the truth, number three, and the truth shall make you free, number four. Number one, if you abide in My word, where do you live? Do you spend your time letting the Word of God influence you? We all know that the people in our home have a tremendous influence on us. Our people in our home determine what we eat. They determine when we sleep. They determine how we feel. They determine what temperature the house is. The people we live with determine a great deal about our lives. When you live with God in His Word, it will determine a great amount of your life. What would God work, God's Word do for us? Number two, if you abide in my words, you are my disciples. Notice that Jesus doesn't say maybe. You might could be my disciples. You possibly are my disciples. It's a probability that you'll be my disciples. No, if you live in God's Word and we live by what it says, the automatic conclusion is that I am a disciple of Jesus. That's the teaching here. It's not a maybe. It's not a could be. You are my disciples, he says, indeed. Number three. If you abide in my word, number one, you are my disciples, indeed. Number two. Number three, you shall know the truth. Now, knowing the truth is directly connected to abiding in my word. And if you abide in my word, Jesus says, you can be my disciples indeed. And if you abide in my word, you can know the truth. 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples and you are my disciples because you know the truth because you've abided in my word. Do you see how these things are connected? I can't know the truth if I haven't abided in God's word. You ever heard somebody say, well, you know what? This is my truth and that can be your truth. This is what's true for me and I'm going to live by it. But, you know, whatever you want to live by, that's okay. That's your truth. And, and you just live by that. Folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that if I abide in God's word, I know the truth, not a truth. I know the truth. There is one absolute truth in this world, and it's concerning God and His Son. Finally, number four, he says that if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There is something of truth that it offers freedom. And there is something of freedom that it can only be offered through truth. Jesus says... If you abide in my word, you only find that truth when you abide in God's word. And you only find that freedom when you abide in God's word. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You will only be Jesus' disciple if you find the freedom that is found in God's word. And you shall know the truth. You can only find the truth if you are abiding in God's word, being his disciple. And then you shall be free because of what you've known. I can only know the truth. If I'm a disciple of Jesus who abides in the Word, and that truth is the only thing that will set me free. I want us to look at the context of John chapter 8 for just a moment because I believe it paints for us a beautiful picture of the redemption of God. And after this, the lesson will be yours. John chapter 8. Now notice, when we're in John chapter 8, we're towards the end of the chapter. John chapter 8, 31 and 32. But if we back ourselves up, to the beginning of the chapter. Now remember, this is an important part of studying. Is when I study the Bible, I need to keep it within the context of what's being discussed. And so in order to do that, I can look above the passage and below it to figure out what God wants me to know. John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32 is towards the end of the chapter. But if we back ourselves up, we're going to see a very interesting story about a woman who was caught in adultery. Now, it's quite a story, and I think sometimes we get lost in the details of this story. This woman is caught in adultery, and she's thrown before Jesus, and then all of a sudden we get confused because Jesus kneels down and he begins to draw in the sand. Now, if we focus ourselves on these details, we lose the true fact of the story. We ask, well, was she really guilty of adultery? Was she guilty of adultery with one of the men that had brought her in? When she was guilty of adultery, Jesus bent down and wrote on the... What did Jesus write? Was he writing their sins? Was he writing their names? Was he writing the law? What was he writing? When we get lost in these details, we lose the true power of the story. It's not about whether or not this woman was caught in adultery. It's not about what Jesus wrote. The entire chapter of John chapter 8 is about us being set free from what enslaves us apart from God. And let's notice the context. How do we get to verses 31 and 32? Let's start in John chapter 8 and verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Early in the morning Jesus is teaching in the temple and as we can understand he's pretty rudely interrupted. We see this interruption in verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and when they had set her in his midst, that's verse 3. They tossed this woman right in the midst of Jesus while he's teaching the word of God. How inappropriate of a situation to throw a woman who has just been caught in adultery. 
Let's move on to verse 4. She doesn't need to be there. She needs to be in front of the Sanhedrin council because in verse 4 they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. If we go back to the old law, we see very clearly that if a woman is caught in adultery, she has to be tried and proven guilty. That's why in the Old Testament we read about that truth comes about by two or three witnesses. That is, if two or three people saw this event, they could bring her before the council and the council could condemn her and she could receive her punishment. She didn't need to be in front of Jesus. She needed to be in front of the council. And so they give this information in verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? You see, I find it very interesting that in verse 5 we see their information, but then we get to verse 6, we find their motive. They weren't just asking for information. These men knew the law. They knew what they were supposed to do. But verse 6 tells us what they were really trying to do. This they said, testing him. That they might have something for which to accuse them. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Jesus teaches these people a very important lesson. How are they trying to trap Jesus here? Well, if Jesus would have said, yes, let's stone her. They would have said, wait, you've broken the Roman law. Because if you go back to the history of the Romans, no Jew could be sentenced to death without the approval of the Romans. That's why Jesus was brought before the Romans when he went on the cross. No person could be put to death without the approval of the Romans. And so if Jesus would have said, hey, yeah, let's stone her, he would have broken the Roman law. If Jesus would have said, no, let's not stone her, he would have broken the law of Moses because very clearly if a woman was caught in adultery, she was brought before the Sanhedrin council and if she was found guilty, they killed that woman. That was the punishment. And so Jesus, they thought, either answer he give, he's in hot water. We sure do have him now. They're trying to trap Jesus. So they were probably hoping that if he decided to take this stand, they could bring him before the Romans. But instead, Jesus ignores them. He stoops down and he writes on the ground with a finger. Now, we don't know what he wrote. Some have tried to figure it out. Scholars have debated it. It doesn't really matter. Most people think he wrote the sins of the men who brought her. That's the common thought. But let me tell you what, it doesn't matter. We really need to know the emphasis that Jesus puts here. This story helps us learn the powerful lesson. Finally, it comes to pass that the issue with Jesus being dealt with, and instead of answering about this woman, he decides to make a comment on the people who brought her. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This verse is oftentimes used out of context to say, How dare you tell me that I'm living in sin? You that are without sin, throw the first stone. And of course, they cite back to the hypocrisy of the one that has the, the large uh, timber out of his eye, telling the man with the speck in his eye, hey, you got something in your eye. That's not the context of what Jesus is saying. I believe Jesus is bringing about the point here in John chapter 8, that the men who brought her had conspired together to try and tempt Jesus. And that's their sin. They came before to try and pull him out, single him out, and condemn him to death. And so they bring this about. Jesus says, let's talk about you instead of her. You talk about this woman being caught in adultery, but I want to talk about you. Whoever is without sin, come and throw this stone at her first. Now, under the old law, there had to be witnesses to a sinful activity. We know this. Two or three brought about the truth. And they had to bear their witness in order for this person to be put to death. 
Now, when a man brought the witness that a woman had been caught in adultery, this was a severe act because that man was the one that had to pick up the first stone and throw it at her first. It's a heavy position to stand in. And Jesus says, whoever of you is without sin in this situation, you can be the one that gives witness and you throw that stone at first. Jesus teaches these men about their character. He teaches them about their intention. And so we get down to verse 9. Those who heard it being convicted of their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the older, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Who's going to throw the stone first? They dismiss themselves from oldest to youngest. And he says to her in verse 10 these words. And I believe in verse 10 these words have been recorded for us for a very particular reason. Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And he said to the woman, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one, has no one condemned you? You see, something is about to change in the life of this adulterous woman. I believe that she's guilty of sin. I don't believe they would have thrown her down in front of Jesus if she wouldn't have been guilty of adultery. I don't think that's the question here. The question that Jesus proposes to this woman is, where are the people who have accused you? Let's ask a question. Who is it that becomes disciples of Jesus? We answered the question in John 8, 31 and 32. It's those who abide in the Word. What Jesus' Word is for this woman, I think, is very powerful. He turns to this woman and he says to her in verse 11, Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. I want you to go and sin no more. Notice Jesus didn't say, I condone you. Let's make that very clear. Jesus doesn't say, what you did was okay. He says, neither do I condemn you. Notice that he's already said this in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You know, we love verses 16 and 17. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We know, verse 17, that, that God did not come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. What was Jesus doing for this woman? They wanted the woman dead. Let's make that very clear. The accusers brought them before Jesus because they wanted her to die. They didn't care about their soul. They were wrapped up in their own earthly lives, and they wanted to come out on top. You see, we get wrapped up and we say, wow, Jesus saved her life. She was going to die. How amazing. They were going to kill her. But I assure you that if Jesus could talk to us about this section of Scripture this morning, He would talk nothing of her physical life. He would talk about the spiritual life that He had just saved. He would place emphasis on the fact that that day, that woman could choose whether she was going to live in what Jesus said or not. Either she was going to go away and sin no more, or she was going to keep doing what she was still doing. Jesus offered her a word by which if she abided in it, she would become a disciple of His, therefore knowing the truth, and the truth could then set her free. We need to realize that all throughout this community, there are people today that have sinned. There are people that have committed sin. Now, I believe that they haven't sat down and evaluated, today I'm not going to live in God's Word. I just, just today's not the day. I might get back to it tomorrow, but today I'm not going to live in God's Word. I don't believe that's how it's happened. 
I believe it's a slow progression in which they slowly leave God's Word because they start to not see the freedom that God's Word offers. Are you living your life within the will of God today? Are you living within God's Word? Or are you like Jeffrey, have you forgotten where you live? You see, when I began to plant my feet into God's Word, like the adulterous woman, I can come to the Word of God with a life full of sin. And Jesus says, leave and be free. Walk away and your sins can be forgiven. But when you walk away, understand that the truth will set you free if you abide in it. Therefore, don't sin anymore. Are you and I living in God's Word today? If not, I would encourage you this morning to come to the feet of Jesus and learn from His Word. I would encourage you to make the decision to be obedient to God. Make the decision to abide in God's Word because the danger is, like Jeffrey, if I leave God's Word, if I leave my home, I begin to forget who I am and who God wants me to be. Maybe today you've forgotten who you are. And maybe you've forgotten who God wants you to be. My encouragement to you is that you would come back and be restored to the Lord. Confess your sins before Him and He will forgive you. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our faults, He is faithful and just to forgive us our faults and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you come to the feet of the Word of God and you live in it, you'll know the truth and the truth. It'll set you free. What does God expect of you? God expects of you to live in His Word. Maybe the case is this morning that you've never approached the feet of the Word of God. And you haven't fallen down at His feet in submission and given your life over to Him through obedient repentance, belief, confession, and baptism. My prayer is that you'll come. We have water that's ready. If you need to give your life over to the Lord through submission to His will, obedience, ready to live a faithful life after that, my prayer is you'll do that. If you don't understand that completely, come and we'll study it with you. But whatever the case, make sure you're living in God's Word, because when you separate yourself from God's Word, we forget who we are. If you have any need, come as we stand and sing.